This morning as we come to God's Word, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As you're doing that, uh, if you are a member here at Gray Road, you know that we have a members meeting after the service today. Uh, For those who are visiting or are regular attenders, uh, different churches may do this in different ways, but here at Gray Road, we truly ask that only members be present at the members meeting. I know some of you are in the process of becoming members, but this is uh, a time uh, for only those who are members. So we'll finish and then I'll briefly dismiss, uh, and we'll take a few minutes between the service and then the start of the members' meeting. All right? Ephesians chapter 3, and we will read verses 7 to 13. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. And so as we come to your eternal word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work and speak and move in such a way that we will hear your words, that we will love your words, that we will want to obey your words, and that we will do so with joy and gladness. We pray this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Well, here we are, the first Sunday of 2021, and I'm sure many have longed for this year to begin and for 2020 to be put to bed. Uh, If you're a Christian, I wonder if you have taken time to reflect on the year that we've just walked through, and maybe particularly to reflect on how you walked through that year. Now, maybe you have and maybe you haven't, but before we dive into the text, let me just ask ask a few questions here, just to help us reflect on how we walked through this last year. Did you trust the Lord as new difficulties and challenges and suffering emerged? Or did you descend into worry and anxiety and fear? How did you use your words? If you were to read a transcript of your conversations and your social media posts, how much was marked by complaint? 
How much was harsh attacks on others? How much was aimed at encouragement? How much was meant to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ? What did quarantine reveal about your soul? Were you faster to anger, to frustration? Did self rise up in you? What did it reveal about your marriage? What did it reveal about your parenting? Where do you see places now that maybe you didn't see places before where you need to grow? How much of your thinking about the issues of 2020 was shaped by Scripture? And how much was shaped by news sources or podcasts or blogs or Twitters or just simply not what that guy says? Did you give thanks in all circumstances as the Bible commands us? Did your zeal in promoting and practicing a particular view of masks and social distancing outweigh your zeal in promoting the gospel or practicing your faith? What would a transcript of your words and a highlight reel of your actions indicate? As 2020 progressed, did you remain committed to glorifying God in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, or did you just want to get through it? Questions like these are helpful. They're helpful to me. I mean, we often say, don't we, that our hope isn't in getting a better set of circumstances, that our hope is in our Savior. And the truth is, a year like 2020 is a God-given opportunity for us to evaluate whether that's just a slogan, whether those are just words we say, or whether it's genuinely the conviction of our hearts, isn't it? As you look back, you have the opportunity to say, where was my hope in all of 2020? You see, whatever our circumstances are, God's purpose for us actually doesn't change. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes it for us that whatever, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And what is true of the individual Christian is also true of us as a church, that whether we eat or whether we drink, well, we do eat and drink because we are Baptists. But whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, whether we minister to the Hebron men or conduct a vacation Bible school, whether we go on a mission trip or support missionaries, whether we have growth groups and Sunday school, whether we give biblical counsel, whether we operate a school ministry, whether we throw baby showers, whether we give offerings, whatever it is that we do, we exist as a church to glorify God. You see, purpose statements abound everywhere. But the good news is the church never has to come up with its own purpose. God has given it to us. We exist to glorify Him. Now, you may see these, uh, these uh, alliterated phrases out in the, uh, the foyer and on our website, and you'll, you'll hear them as we go through this series that we're beginning, that we, that we glorify God by... Exalting Jesus in passionate worship, equipping Christians for life and service, encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, and engaging the world with the gospel. But those phrases, as good as they are, they only say what we do. They don't say all the why. The why is in that first bit. We exist to glorify God. 
period. We could change all of those phrases to other things that are reflected in the Bible or rewrite them in different ways. But everything that we do is aimed to glorify God. Here in Ephesians 3, Paul is talking about his gospel ministry as an apostle, a gospel that he paints in magnanimous and beautiful words in chapters 1 and 2 that we cannot actually whip through even at this point. But he's talking about it, and in verses 8 and 9, if you'll look down at it, he says, here's part of what he does, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. His ministry involves preaching the gospel, which brings people into relationship with God. And then, he says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, if you only read that, you think, well, what is that? What is this mystery? Is that like a special class you have to go to at the church? Where, what is this thing? Well, he told us just a few verses early. If, if you look up at verse 6... He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the glorious plan of God is that His work was never going to be limited to only Israel, but to the world. It was going to expand. Remember what God said to Abram, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that is part of what Paul preaches, that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in the church as one family. And then when we get to verse 10, Paul tells us that those are actually just means. Those aren't the end. The end is, follows that little phrase at the beginning of verse 10, so that, and this is where our focus is going to be this morning. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's why the church exists. The church exists to glorify God. Period. That is why the church universal exists. And that is why any true church locally exists, is to glorify God. So let's think about what he says just in verse 10. First of all, noticing that the church displays God's wisdom. The church displays God's wisdom. Paul says it explicitly. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. But what does he mean? What is the manifold wisdom of God? Well, to get to that, let's just start by thinking about human wisdom, and then we will move upward, all right? When we're talking about human wisdom, we're talking about that the fact that wisdom involves knowledge, insight, decision-making, skill, to take the right path to a desired end. So, Susan and I recently sat down with our financial advisor, and he talked to us about retirement. He told us, if you want to retire at this age, you need to do this. If you want to retire at this age, you need to do that. I'll be working until 120, it looks like. So, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, so, it's more than the 30 years that I told the pastor search team when I first came here. So, that's, that's closer to like 85 years, all right? Uh, so, uh, we'll test your endurance and mine. Uh, 
But what he was doing was sharing his financial wisdom, his knowledge, his insights, showing us the path to get to the right place. If you want to expand your business, it takes wisdom to put all the facts together, to make the right decisions, to take the right risks in order to achieve a particular end. If you're going to even build a house for yourself, you have to have knowledge and insight and skill to make certain kinds of decisions. I mean, the Bible even talks about the fact that in the building of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 31, God gave wisdom to particular men so that they could build the tabernacle. So you put all these things together, there's knowledge, there's insight, there's decision making, there's skill, all of these things to get to a desired end. And above all human wisdom, friends, beyond any human's ability to do any of that is God's wisdom. You see, wisdom involves knowledge, and God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is no fact, either actual or possible, that is unknown to Him. He knows it all. Wisdom involves decision-making, and God is righteous in all His ways, Psalm 145 tells us. Wisdom involves skill, and God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, which means He never fails to do what He sets out to do. Isn't that wonderful? God never fails to do what He sets out to do. God never utters the phrase, well, maybe next time. He never tries to build himself up by saying, if at first you don't succeed. He never fails to do exactly what he plans to do. Wisdom takes the best path to a desired end. And our God is holy. His desired end for human history, the path that He has us on, is perfect. It will take us to the best possible end. None of us will arrive that day. None of us will be glorified in the new heavens and new earth and say, well, that could have gone better. None of us will do that. Because we will have insight like we don't have now. We will, some of us may think that 2020 was like that place in your old record, or for, the new, for still not young people, but newer, younger people on your CD, where it would hit that place and skip forward, right? You know that place where it would just kind of just move a little forward? Like if just December 30, like February 28 or something like that of 2020 could just like, oh, January 1. Here we are. But did you know none of it, none of it lies outside the absolute perfect wisdom of God in unfolding His plan and purposes for the universe? None of it does. Painful? Yes. Hard? Yes. Suffering? Yes. Trials? Yes. Pain like you couldn't have imagined before? Yes. But to walk by faith through any year that is marked by those things is to remember and to consistently remind yourself, our God is great, our God is good, and our God is wise. 
So when we talk about God's wisdom, as with every other attribute of God, it is perfect. Perfect wisdom belongs to God. It marks His very essence. Daniel 2 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Paul calls the Lord in Romans 16 the only wise God. And there are a couple of main places that the wisdom of God is said to be revealed in the Bible. One is in creation, and we'll just look at this briefly. Uh, Psalm 104 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Proverbs 3 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. But here in Ephesians 3, Paul isn't talking about the wisdom of God revealed in creation. He's talking about the wisdom of God revealed in redemption, in our salvation. And we know that, look at verse 10, we know that by one little word in there. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Might now be made known. In other words, there was a time when this wisdom was hidden, but now it is made known. It's the same kind of thing Paul says up in verses 4 and 5. Look at that. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." You see, the wisdom of God in creation has been on display since the beginning. But the wisdom of God in redemption, when you read the Old Testament, it comes in types and it comes in shadows and it comes in prophecies. It's not all as clear as one might think. Now it is as when you get to it's like watching a movie where the ending, like all the twist is in the end. I won't ruin any movies by giving you an example. But you know these movies, well, I'll ruin one movie for you. Uh, you know Field of Dreams, right? You'd go through the whole thing and he's building the baseball field and he goes on the trip and he does all these things and, uh, you know, ease his pain. And he's like, what in the world's going on? He just keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. And then the last four minutes of the movie you discover... This was all about his relationship with his father. That four minutes is like reading the New Testament. Oh. That's all about Jesus. And so then when you go back and you watch Field of Dreams again, or when you go back and read your Old Testament again, you go, I know where this is going. And you're like nudging the person next to you who hasn't seen the movie yet, right? You pay attention to that. This is important. That's what we do with the Bible. And now it has been made known in the coming of Jesus. That's why verse 11 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, that he has done, that he has accomplished. He's accomplished his purpose, making the plan known open understanding of what God's purpose is through Jesus Christ. And the church puts God's wisdom of redemption in redemption on display. His great, majestic, 
comprehensive plan of redemption. And Paul calls it manifold. It is multifaceted. So we see God's wisdom in conversion, in our becoming a Christian. If you go back just to, on my Bible, it's just a page over, Ephesians 1, verse 7, you see, and 8, you see that our forgiveness, our redemption, the fact that our sin's been paid for is done in wisdom. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That, this just doesn't fit human wisdom here. Most people walk around thinking God just forgives sin. There's nothing necessary to do it. He can just kind of poof it away. The holiness of God is not even taken into account. But the fact of the matter is, in God's wisdom, He has crushed His Son to make the full payment for the wrath that He will rightly pour out forever. So that either the wrath of God has been poured out on your sin in Jesus on the cross, or The wrath of God will be poured out on you forever and ever in a place the Bible calls hell. But the wrath of God in response to sin is poured out. But why us? That doesn't make any sense. We're nobodies, we're nothing, we're weak, and we're foolish. Why would God ever save the likes of us? If you keep your hand there and turn back to 1 Corinthians 1, we begin to see, beginning in verse 21, since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's another so that. Why is it that wisdom seems to be turned upside down when it becomes to who's, who's saved? It's not the wise people. It's not the strong people. It's not the people who are everything in this world. It's the nobodies. It's the weak. I mean, it's us, right? We know ourselves to be that. And the reason is so that no one may boast before God. Why? Because the wisdom of God is on display in our salvation. The absolute perfect plan of God unfolding to glorify Himself and to glorify His Son Jesus as the only Savior of the world. That is what's on display in our conversion. God's wisdom in our sanctification, which means our spiritual growth. There are a number of passages, we won't go to all of them, that teach that our spiritual growth, one of the primary means God uses to grow us spiritually is 2020s. God uses 2020s to grow us. 
God uses suffering. God uses trials. God uses hardship. One of those passages is James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now you just read that and you say, that doesn't make sense to me. Isn't there a better way that God could grow me rather than send me through 2020? Isn't there a better way than this cancer? Isn't there a better way than this unemployment? Isn't there a better way than this broken world? Isn't there a better way than hardship and suffering and pain and grief? I don't get it. Well, the very next verse, James says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In other words, there's a wisdom about God's way of growing us and God's purpose in trials that is beyond us. Beyond human wisdom, beyond finite understanding, and we must go to God to get that wisdom. God's wisdom is displayed in unity, in our unity as a church. Back to Ephesians. In the context here, God's wisdom is seen in this, that there is no human barrier that can resist the power of Christ in tearing it down. No social barrier, no economic barrier, no ethnic barrier, no educational barrier, no racial barrier, none whatsoever. Paul says in speaking to Jews and Gentiles, up in chapter 2, verse 14, He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, no matter what human wisdom may produce, no matter what critical theories come around the corner, no matter what educational programs may be put in place, no matter what laws may be passed, no matter what good-intentioned efforts are made in seeking to tear down the barriers that exist between human beings, none of them can actually do it. They often have the exact opposite effect of what is intended. The only power to truly unite human beings is the power that reunites human beings with their God. It is the power of the gospel. The cross that tore down the barrier between me and God tears down barriers between me and other human beings. That's what Ephesians 2 says. When we begin to say that we need more than the gospel to accomplish what God says He has done in Christ, we are adding to God's revelation. This word is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And that's just three things. 
God's wisdom in conversion, God's wisdom in sanctification, God's wisdom in our unity. It is manifold wisdom. It is multifaceted wisdom. It is a kaleidoscope of wisdom, and it's on display in the church. And while Paul is, seems to be really speaking about the church universal all around the world, what is said of all around the world is meant to be true in every local expression of the church. So, Gray Road Baptist Church, we are meant to be a three-dimensional display of God's wisdom of redemption. In our conversion and how we talk about it, understanding that we're great sinners and we've been redeemed by a great Savior to no credit of our own. In our sanctification, in our pursuit of holiness, and in our commitment to help one another along that path. And in our unity, that while it is true that the church is exclusive, only those who trust in Jesus Christ belong here, really. While that's true, the church is also inclusive. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ belongs here. It's both and. It's not either or. When you go either or, you go very quickly into sin. You're either going to sacrifice the gospel or you're going to practice favoritism. One or the other. It is both and. We are meant to be a display of God's glorious, multifaceted kaleidoscope of wisdom in how we live our lives and in how we live together. But that's not all that we see. Not just that the church displays God's wisdom, the church declares God's victory. Let me read the full verse again, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This display of God's wisdom, while it is a testimony to the world around us, while it can be used to draw people to Christ, that's not Paul's focus here. Paul says this display is before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Well, they're in the heavenly places, so these aren't human rulers and authorities that we're talking about. Some kind of angelic being is in Paul's mind. Angels of some sort. And as I read commentaries this week, I have to tell you that several scholars say that these rulers and authorities are exclusively holy angels. Now, it's true that holy angels have a great and vested interest in God's plan of redemption. I mean, 1 Peter 1.12 says that they long to look into these things. When you look at Revelation, places like Revelation 5, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels join in the praise of Jesus Christ for the redemption that He has accomplished. But while it's possible that Paul has holy, holy angels in view, at the very least, I don't think he only has them in view. And here's why. I once heard a preacher say, you're on good ground when you seem to go against a bunch of commentaries. So here I go on good ground. You ready? I don't think Paul's talking about strictly holy angels. I 
tend to lean toward he's not talking about them at all, but I leave open the possibility. Here's why. First of all, the Greek words here for rulers and authorities, arche and exousia, are never used anywhere else in the New Testament to speak of holy angels. It's always angelos or angeloi, that messenger's word. Secondly, as you're reading the Bible, if you're having trouble, even if you just don't know even where to go to look at some Greek thing, and you want to know what could this mean, and you have no knowledge of Greek, one of the things you can do is take these words, take the words you're trying to understand, and look for them, not just in other places in the Bible, but look for them in other places where that same author has written. That's a helpful way to try to get to the bottom of the meaning of a word. And Paul uses these words in a few other places. He uses it in Ephesians 1.21 when he talks about Christ being head over all rule and authority. Interestingly, if you flip forward, just turn the page to Ephesians 6. Listen to this. 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You hear all that overlap when you read that? Rulers, authorities, heavenly places. In Colossians chapter 2, Jesus is called the head of all rule and authority. Then a few verses later, he says, it says this, Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And then there's one other place where these two are put together, and that's in 1 Corinthians 15, where speaking of future events, Paul says, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, I take all of that and I say, well, when Paul talks about rulers and authorities, at most, if not every time, he speaks about fallen angels. He speaks about rulers and authorities who are enemies of the cross, enemies of Jesus, and enemies of us, Christ's followers. We wrestle against the powers, the rulers, and the authorities in the heavenly places. And so I believe that what's in view here in Ephesians 3.10 is that the display of God's glorious wisdom in the church is the resounding echo of God's triumph throughout the universe. Now think about how big that gets. God's glorious wisdom on display in the church is a resounding echo of His triumph over all His enemies throughout all the universe. Doesn't that give you a sense that what we do here is really significant? That this isn't just about, well, what programs would I like to have in the church? Or what's the children's ministry like? Or, or what song are we going to sing after that? Am I, am I getting the right percentage of songs that I like as part of the church service? Dear friends, our sole purpose 
The confusion of our age is that the church exists to meet as many needs on the horizontal as possible. When in reality, the church exists to glorify God who needs nothing. And in doing that, in all that we do, part of that will come as we meet, we'll meet needs as we do it. When we lift Jesus up, what is it that your suffering friend needs more than anything else? It's not 20 bucks for more gas. It's faith in Jesus Christ. What is it that I need when the doctor tells me I have X number of months to live? I need Jesus Christ more than I need a miracle cure. Though he slay me, Job said, yet will I hope in him. Our life together as a church is meant to glorify God. And this resounding echo of God's great triumph rings the loudest and stings the deepest in the ears of God's enemies, in the ears of the spiritual forces of darkness, in the ears of Satan and all those angels who fell with him. See, friends, the church exists to glorify God. Just think about that here at 5500 Gray Road as we follow Christ together, as we do the work of the ministry together. We are a 3D display of God's wisdom and redemption, and the evil one and the demons with him are reminded over and over again of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And they are all reminded over and over again of what's coming in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And they will be reminded even as we sing. Sing this with me from Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Will you put the next? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. We know His doom is sure. God's Word shall overthrow Him. Isn't that true? Do you believe it in your soul? 
as you and I, as we, as a church, seek to glorify God, whether we sing that particular verse of that particular hymn or not, its truth and the truth of God's victory over all his enemies pounds the walls of the universe. There is no greater purpose than to live for the glory of God because there is none greater than our God. That is why we exist. That is why you exist. And Jesus Christ came because none of us would live for that purpose. Because we were not interested in glorifying God. We were not interested in exalting Him. We were not interested in His wisdom. We were interested in our own. And yet in God's wisdom, Jesus Christ came and became for us wisdom so that Paul says to Peter that we could be made wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. Have you been made wise in that way? Do you realize that you cannot glorify God in the way you are meant to glorify God apart from knowing Jesus Christ? How I would long to see you turn from your sin and trust in Him so that He would be your wisdom and your righteousness before God. You exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God before a watching world and throughout the universe. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you, recognizing that you don't need us for anything. You don't need me to preach. You don't need us to serve. You have no needs whatsoever. And yet, in your kindness and mercy, not only have you saved us, you have invited us into your great purpose in the world to glorify you, to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. Father, forgive us when we think our purpose lies elsewhere. When we think it lies in a different realm. When we think it begins in some earthly place. When you have given us a purpose that begins in heaven. Would you strengthen us by your grace? to walk through this year committed to glorifying you? Would you reveal to us places where in the year that has just closed we did not seek to glorify you? And would you give us grace to repent and walk afresh and anew? chasing hard after your glory. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for his blood 
forgiving our sin, his righteousness making us right with you. We pray this week that we will be a church that exists for your glory. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we're going to take three or four minutes. If you are a guest, thank you so much for being here. We don't have members.